This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Alignment Languages. Lehman Kessler. And Ken's 2015 raid on Powell's Portland. Marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or... Write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the smiling countenance of Peter Frampton tell us we've once more entered the friendly, even shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And here in this old-school issue of the Gaming Hut, we're going to an old-school question, the question of alignment languages, which I think, they do they predate AD&D, or did they come in as part of the advancements that made D&D so darn advanced? I, I'm sure there are D&D historians uh, listening to this, uh, chomping at the bit to go back in time and teleport beside us and give us the right answer. But uh, if I had to guess, I think it's in AD&D. I think so, too. That's my guess, too. Yeah, that's when all of the uh, Gygaxian Baroque filigrees began to pour onto it, work their way into the system. And I think it's important that we state our guess so that the D&D historians will feel impelled to correct us in the uh, comments. Yes. Right. Uh, so I'm sure someone can tell us the exact uh, date and minute at which uh, this was thought mm-hmm. of and then uh, put into a book somewhere. John Peterson is right now rushing to the keyboard. Right. And uh, probably the answer will probably be that it was a Musing in Dragon magazine before it was mm. uh, saw formal print. So we, we right. talked a little bit about secret languages a couple of 
episodes ago and briefly touched on the existence of alignment languages. And uh, without getting into my whole thing on alignment, I guess maybe we should have a segment called Our Whole Thing on Alignment. Maybe uh, we should. Uh, this has always been uh, one of the uh, sort of delightfully crazier details of early D&D. And uh, like a lot of things that... Uh, in our collection of Baroque filigrees that was not necessarily uh, fully integrated into a logical world because a logical F20 world is and probably should be a contradiction in terms. It's a portmanteau, exactly. a stew pot of uh, different ideas and concepts. If you concepts. were looking for logic in the mouth of the chromatic dragon, you were looking in the wrong place. Except here in this segment. So what we're going right. to do is look at that crazy idea of people with different uh, moral viewpoints and uh, in a world where there are nine or, I guess, ten discernible uh, moral viewpoints who uh, speak corresponding languages that correspond to their uh, uh, morality uh, and their uh, views on or their tendencies toward either chaos and law or good and, and evil. And in which, remember, their alignment can shift and so, therefore, do their languages. Right? Right. Because if you are lawful good and you've gone around stabbing too many prisoners and looting too many nunneries, then the GM's like, you are no longer lawful good, my friend. You are now chaotic neutral or something. And you've lost, I guess, the lawful good language. You can no longer palaver with paladins and you must now natter with uh, thieves and such, right? Right. So the goal of our uh, spitballing today is not to come up with something that at the end of the process resembles an F20 world, but rather something that extrapolates. Right. That, that extrapolates out from this idea as our central conceit for a fantasy world. And then what do we wind up with at the end? So uh, I think uh, I'll put down a couple of markers first. So we'll stick with the idea that there are these 10 alignments as we know them. But but uh, the rest of the cosmology, we don't necessarily need to adopt or not adopt. Right. So we're currently agnostic on the issue, for example, as to whether there's a separate plane of existence that corresponds to each of these um, moral viewpoints. Or, or multiple gods, or is there one, you know, god who's got a bunch of different uh, avatars and... Uh, responds to you depending on how you worship him. Um, I, I think let's let's stick with the let's the, stick with multiple the, the gods. Pantheon, the pantheistic. So there are there are at least ten gods. There are at least ten <laughs> gods. One for each alignment, and uh, or or possibly more. We'll we'll work that out as we go. And so what I want to uh, start off by proposing is that it is the uh, the language that you choose to learn when you come of age that determines your moral viewpoint, not the other way around. Very strong sacred wharf, then. Yes. So you're making a conscious decision uh, when you, uh, when you uh, get old enough to start speaking a language, or uh, perhaps it's an unconscious decision. Perhaps it's like, uh, you know, you, you grow up, first of all, speaking your um, mother tongue of your culture, whatever that is. But Common, they yes. call it. Uh, which is another weirdo thing, actually, that there's a universal language, but let's, let's leave that aside for a moment. <laughs> So you grew up speaking your perfectly normal Aquilonian or uh, Midgardese or whatever it is. Right. So do you choose to be initiated into uh, one of the ten viewpoints, or do you find a you have a predilection for it, and that's why you can understand the uh, lawful good priests when they come around uh, speaking their lawful good talk, uh, and not the neutral evil guys? Which way do we want to go on this? Well, if you're saying that what language you chooses to speak shapes your morality, then it should probably be something where the language comes first, right? Uh, and that's either as you're, you know, um, uh, nailing together a, a crib for your baby sister and you hit your thumb and you say a bad word, 
well, you're not lawful good anymore. You've just cursed, and you've cursed in some other language, and maybe there are sort of, is it like, maybe it's like Indo-European where there's a bunch of roots that eventually grow, and as you talk more and more, uh, they pull you towards a given result. Uh, the possi- I think that the possibility has to be that if we're going to make this the fun one instead of just, well, he's grown up evil, of course he's going to speak evil language, I think it's more fun, like you say, if he grows up speaking ing- evil language and it turns him evil. So you have to, you can't be picking the language based on morality, because then that's just going, you know, we've put our cart back behind the horse where it doesn't belong. So the language that you speak is being drawn out of you either by the gods or by just the innate nature of, of, of magic and the cussedness of things, and that you find yourself more and more easily expressing yourself in the alignment language. And I guess the question that I have is, is there some period in, you know, and, and if we're assuming that you, you pick up alignment language in adolescence or whatever, is there some period in your adolescence where you sort of understand neutral and you sort of understand chaotic good and you sort of understand lawful evil, but eventually there you're going to lose that and and be pulled completely into one linguistic circle? Are there sort of um, uh, uh, alignment uh, polyglots and alignment creoles that grow up on the boundaries between neutral evil and true neutral so that people can sort of still talk to that or they have to bring 13-year-olds to act as interpreters between their two alignments? Um, well, I guess we need to back up a step and ask ourselves, what is the purpose of these alignment languages? Uh, which is a question you might also ask yourself yes. in D&D. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right, sure. But, but, <laughs> Let's but, ask ourselves. But when are they used? So, for example, if you're you know in a group of people and you suddenly break into uh, lawful good lingo, and um, first of all, presumably, uh, just as in the real world, I can recognize... Uh, Italian or Portuguese, and I can tell um, Korean from Chinese uh, on the, hearing them on the street, but can't understand what they mean. Presumably also the tonal qualities of all of these different languages are still recognizable. So I can hear that you are speaking lawful good to the paladin. I don't necessarily know what you're saying, but the fact that you've chosen to speak that other language, I don't understand that has a moral component to it in front of me, tells me something about what's going on and how I'm being excluded. So if this is to really uh, make sense at all, presumably this is a religious or a liturgical or a spiritual language that you would mostly speak in church. And so you would speak it or, or uh, during worship or whatever it is, because obviously not every belief system is going to have a church specifically. Right. You but, might just go out to the uh, grove and speak tree neutral to the plants. Right. So it's a uh, expression of your spirituality. So it's mostly something that you would uh, speak uh, during uh, religious services so that uh when you go to uh, talk to your lawful good priest and seek confession, or whether when the uh, goblin comes to you uh, and uh, wants to make sure that uh, you are both on the uh, side of darkness and he can therefore trust you with the serrated uh, knife of wuju or whatever it is. And I guess also that uh, what alignment languages do, if the gods created them, they created them so that all of their different uh, peoples who did not all speak the same language. So let's say in this world, there isn't a common tongue per se. I think we've already said that, that that allows goblins to go and talk to uh, evil minions so and so forth, right? So that, I guess that does give you the uh, the practical value of that language as well. So it's a language that you use in uh, uh, worship or in planning things of importance to your gods when they want you to go and do practical things in the world as fantasy world gods tend to do. And it acts as a, I mean, the thing is, once it exists, 
practical uses for it get found. So even if you know the language did not mean to exist to allow goblins and gnolls to plot attacks on lizard men, they start using it that way. And similarly, you know, you could imagine that they start using it as a security system at the walls of the of the great king's uh, city, and he's like. Uh, you have to be able to speak uh, a sentence in one of the good aligned languages or we're not letting you into the city because you're probably a criminal. And, you know, even if it didn't exist that way before, it's going to start being used for that about, you know, you know, 20 seconds after people figure out their alignment languages and that a user of lawful good can't speak lawful evil because, as you say, it it, uh, it warps their brain and, and changes the very linguistic core of their being, right? Right. And so this is a world, first of all, where it's very difficult to conk the stormtrooper on the head and steal his armor and pose as him to the other bad guys, because if they're all uh, speaking in lawful evil, you're not going to be able to uh, do that. Or perhaps you can, but you can only speak it with a, an accent or something. But let's let's go with the more hardline, crazy version of this, which is that it uh, what these languages were created by the gods as a um, means of uh, religious initiation, so that you. Uh, you, growing up, you can tell the different languages. You might feel a pull toward one of them, and like you might feel all tingly when you he hear uh, the druids speaking uh, chaotic good uh, to each other out in the forest or what have you. But it's only when you are initiated into your spiritual tradition, which is connected to a god or a spirit or even a philosophy, that you then begin to really be able to speak the language and understand it fluently. And it is the uh, epiphany that comes with that initiation that the language floods your brain and uh, as languages do in real life that then shapes you and changes your framework of your uh, what you can even think about I'm, I'm just very much enjoying the notion of the philosophical uh, inquiry the academy in some you know great uh, center of learning and they're convinced that they've come with a philosophical justification for the good that doesn't require gods but they can still never speak you know lawful good so I guess not sorry <laughs> your philosophy has been linguistically disproven Wittgenstein is smiling down at you or maybe you can right that <laughs> the, the gods uh, you know care about uh, what you do, not what you profess. So even if yeah. uh, you don't uh, believe in them, well, if you're a, a, a materialist in your materialist college in materialist land, you, uh, as you complete your final exam, uh, you suddenly find yourself writing in uh, lawful good. And so, you know, law lawful and everyone good. makes fun of you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then you have to go to the lawful good professor because he's the only one who can read and grade your paper. So you might, you might have to switch faculty <laughs> advisors. Yeah, actually, I, I'm kind of enjoying the notion of the professor of chaotic evil. It's like, yeah, we don't really like his office hours so much. Yeah. Those are, those are a little, we need a representative yeah. of all 10 on faculty. And that's, <laughs> yeah. that's why Voldemort is still accredited. <laughs> yes. That's why, that's why Snape gets to teach. <laughs> You now have uh, even more than the uh, sort of detect evil uh, spell that you see in some iterations of, of F20. You now have a demonstrable proof of someone's uh, moral uh, worldview, and therefore you have sort of a polarization between them. Because you can always communicate with people of different viewpoints using 
uh, local languages or, uh, you know, if your, your species may also uh, have uh, an inherent uh, language, which is probably, uh, if we're going to be quasi-realistic about languages, has all sorts of different local variations and dialects and so forth. So there's all yes. sorts of other ways. I think it's important would... to be linguistically rigorous during this discussion. Right, right. because that's, this is the whole point of this crazy pants <laughs> It's idea. the more fun. Uh, but still, you have uh, an even more polarized world where if you can uh, tell what someone else's uh, viewpoint is just by asking, by speaking to them in a language and expecting to get a response back. We know that in our world, people tend to uh, cluster together. So that would tend to get you more, uh, even more of the, here's the lawful good kingdom. And, you know, the neutral goods and the chaotic goods are um, minorities with a different uh, status level, because uh, especially among the lawfuls, you know, you they can't be trusted. Well, there's there's good, but you're also lawful, so you have a hierarchical mm -hmm. system. And the chaotic good kingdom, they may uh, you know allow the lawfuls to come in every so often, so they can uh, mock them. And but the lawfuls can't like uh, hold office or uh, or run anything in a chaotic good because kingdom they, because they start holding offices and running things. You can't things, have that. Right, yeah. yeah, you can't have that. So then you get the question again of what happens if you uh, does it, is this a world where people are locked uh, from initiation to the grave into one moral worldview, or uh, if this is a, a game setting, of course, the characters aren't going to be locked into one uh, moral worldview. They're going to waver considerably the way yes. that uh, player characters often do. So uh, you could play that one of two ways, and uh, one of them would be that uh, you find that your tongue starts to slow down and your head hurts and you start to experience all these withdrawal symptoms because your brain is used to the reward mechanism of being able to think in this language. And this may, in fact, be displace the local tongue as the, the uh, language of your interior monologue, right? You may mm -hmm. literally only be thinking lawful good thoughts. Well, I think that's what the gods, when they set this up, that's what they wanted, is so that the that's why the language exists, is to sort of uh, reward good behavior and, and create patterns of thought that, uh, line up with the gods, uh, you know, alignment agendas, right? They right. literally align with them. And so if you are thinking outside that or you're acting outside that, first, you may find yourself unable to actually describe what it is you did, or you may have weird little um, uh, fugue states. And then you know, I, I like the part where your, your mouth gets really dry, or your tongue gets really swollen up as you try and sort of, you know, you have a physiological response to the lack of the of the dopamine hit from obeying your alignment. And I think that can be one of the interesting methodologies that um, if you are doing something lawful good and you're speak and you're uh, then, especially if you're like arguing for a lawful good course of action, you might get a plus one to persuade because your language is just flowing that much more freely. Simultaneously, if you're plotting to ambush someone and, and betray them, your uh, chaotic evil, you may uh, get a plus one on tactics because you can set up a really great plan for being a jerk to somebody uh, using chaotic evil vocabulary, even with using your regular goblinese vocabulary. But because you're chaotic evil, you're picking the words right and you're thinking more clearly because your interior mind is so uh, purely based on betrayal, right? Yeah, so I, I think I want to import the scientific idea of dopamine uh, in, and uh, dopamine receptors into this fantasy world so that your 
uh, when you're speaking your language and things are really flowing, you think better in that language and it rewards you more. It makes you feel a sense of euphoria. Not dopamine, it's the blessing of the gods. There you go. That's that's uh, that's what it is. So you feel the blessing of the gods more. And therefore, uh, when you start to stray, you start to feel literal withdrawal symptoms. So undergoing a conversion experience, unless it has some sort of magical potency that happens right away as an epiphany. Where yeah, suddenly, of alignment know, change, say. Yeah, you're on the road to Damascus and boom, uh, all of a sudden you your head is flooded with this other language and you immediately shift to... Uh, become a different person on the spot with a different worldview that if you're just sort of slowly moving uh, from your interior state into another uh, moral system that you it starts to hurt and you feel bad and and it's uh, it takes you a while to move into this other system so that the gods have this way of enforcing that and keeping that on track and so that in a game and of course you'd have to get huge buy-in from the players to agree to play in this world because it goes against what players prefer to do um they could start to feel bad when they find themselves uh straying from uh from the path and it becomes a, a much bigger deal to convert to a different faith or to start acting uh toward a radically different agenda because you literally have to undergo a biological transformation a um a full conversion i think another thing we can talk about is the not just the you know rewards of interiority the notion that oh no i find myself slipping away from the true course of chaotic neutral i must go to a chaotic neutral monastery and say only chaotic neutral sutras in chaotic neutral and rebuild my connection to the uh the the the, the god of tricksters but uh you also i really think you you're going to wind up with even the mortal languages, Aquilonian is going to have a bunch of good slang so that the chaotic good guy and the neutral good guy and the lawful good guy can all sort of share some concepts, or the chaotic evil guy and the chaotic neutral guy and the chaotic good guy can all share some concepts if they're planning a heist. You're going to start seeing that slang filter down into the regular language, and so even if someone is speaking perfectly normal Gondorian, you'll hear, oh, he's speaking with kind of an evil accent, I think, and that's maybe the thing where you're, you're, um, you can get a little more of that subjectivity back, right? and it can be a, a real faux pas or a real thing you only can do under you know, duress by a priest or a, or a guard or a king is the, the only guy that can make you speak in alignment language. But now people are like, oh, he sounds, he sounds like he's got some evil in his, his I think we're going to you know, stab him and take his stuff. And, oh, my mouth feels okay. Guess it must be all right. <laughs> right, and there's a, there's a threat there that as words start to filter into mundane languages, right? As, as a word becomes more and more of a loan word and stops being italicized when you typeset it and just becomes a regular yeah. word, then it loses its spiritual valence. And that the spiritual language then has to either replace that word or it just loses uh, its magical control over that. So that if you uh, have a word for betrayal in the evil tongues, that's slightly different for each of them. And then, but that just becomes a slang term for betrayal to everybody. You become less good at betraying because the, the word betrayal no longer carries that uh, sort of a Kabbalistic charge to it. And so you literally could have a language police like the Quebec language police who go around from the different alignments, uh, enforcing the uh, language purity, and if they hear a word sort of slipping into the uh, 
lingua franca, they can then go and start threatening to beat people up who are using that word without permission, who are appropriating uh, the word and and uh, uh, profaning it. And or cut off their tongue. Yeah, and so that could be even like a, an assignment that you go on as a as an adventuring party as you're uh, hearing stories that uh, the word for uh, solar celestial goodness is being profaned in the kingdom of thought, and you have to go there and uh, find the poet who's written this popular song that uh, uses that term in it and because uh, it's the only him, one that rhymes. Yeah, and, and get him to <laughs> yeah, exactly and get him to rewrite the song before it spreads, or you're going to lose your solar celestial powers. I was thinking that that is one of the uh, sort of fantasy world justifications for things like the uh, the board of censors that they would have. You know, you'd have, if you, Shakespeare wanted to publish a play, he had to get it approved by the um, uh, the official guy who was in charge of approving things. Um, and this is going to be something where. There may not just be one guy, or there may be in Lawful Good Kingdom, they're happy to approve plays that debase the chaotic evil language and use it as, as common speech, even though there runs the risk of there being riots and, and thefts and, and gropings and such right after such a play, because the words have still got some of their power and are sort of flowing out into the audience. It's like, well, ordinarily we like law, but this is going to really screw over the chaotic evil and maybe it becomes everyone's patriotic duty when the orcs are about to attack. Everyone has to, you know, sort of sing songs and write poetry and sort of try and use as much of the chaotic evil speech badly or uh, unalignedly as they can to to drain out some of the the power of the of the orcs, right? But it's a, a double edged thing because yeah. if you let the word get into your language, it might infect the language, and mm-hmm. you might start uh, slowly. You know, if you learn too many evil loan words, you may find. Uh, yourself moving toward evil acts so that just knowing the supernatural spiritual word for betrayal may make you uh, more likely uh, to betray but so as not to betray listener expectations it's time that we brought this segment to a close and moved on to our next one Here we are with another segment of Ken and or Robin. Talk to someone else. This time, Ken and Robin are talking to Lehman Kessler of Ask Lovecraft fame. Uh, You do sort of a form of literary cabaret in which you take on the character of H.P. Lovecraft, and sometimes it's a a one-man show format, and sometimes it's a a Q&A format. How did you... uh, I guess the first question is, how did you... Why did you decide to... Uh, become an H.P. Lovecraft incarnator? Well, uh, a friend of mine asked me to be in a play about Lovecraft and his wife. It was called Monsters Invisible, and it was a sort of short little kind of character study piece, and it was a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed it, and a friend of his saw that and asked me to recreate Lovecraft for his web show, and I thought to myself, you know what? I like this. I can sort of do this this, this character. I have the, the, you know, the black suit and tie to pull it off. Yeah. It's not like there's a lot of props involved. You know, stovepipe hat. <laughs> Indeed, you know, I, I don't have to, to grow some crazy Mark Twain, you know, mustache. And you are committed to a haircut. Though. I am committed to my depression era haircut. Uh, yeah. You know, and no mustache, which makes my wife very happy. So that worked out in my favor, or her favor at least. And yeah, and I, I you know, I've had, I've 
started and failed at various different projects and grown tired of them. And so I figured, well, you know, this is another one. I'll see how long I can keep this going. And this idea of doing a sort of H.P. Lovecraft, Dear Abby advice column sort of tickled me. And that was two and a half years ago. And uh, 400 episodes later, I'm still at it. And it's an interesting process of being both, well, the, the web show is very different from the live show, which you guys got to see. You know, the web series, essentially, I get, in, I get tons of emails, and I sort of go through, and I figure out which ones seem interesting, and I kind of work in my head what two or three gags I can get out of it. And then, bam, I put it up, and it's, it's ready to go. Whereas with the live show, I sort of, you know, I'm suddenly shot a question, and I have about .01 seconds to think, okay, where do I go with this? Do I go serious? Do I go endearing? Do I go just silly? And it's, uh, it's much more, you know, being shot at, you know, in a bar saloon uh, and made to dance, which, as an actor, I appreciate. It's sort of halfway between stand-up and improv, basically. Pre precisely, yeah. Now, do you have uh, go-to answers? You've got, like, a, a quiver of them, and so some questions you know you have a killer answer for and you can just knock it out of the park? Yeah. Or do you try not to uh, uh, rely on, you know, previous material? No, no, I'm, I'm willing to steal for myself. Okay. Uh, you know, I trust the source material. So, yeah, especially when I did one live show uh, for the Toronto French, we developed it. It was based largely on, on the web series, but it was because we didn't think anyone would necessarily know who Lovecraft was, or there wouldn't be a uh, sort of a critical mass of people who knew who Lovecraft was, so we needed to have a full show's worth of questions and answers in case people just stared at me blankly. So I have, you know, a handful of questions and answers that I can kind of ping out there, and for this show, it worked pretty well because if someone asked a question that touched on one of those prepared bits, mm -hmm. well, now I have a two-minute bit that I know I can kind of riff off of and play, and I seem really smart because I'm making all these references really fast and really, you know, uh, smoothly. But it's those are the kind of well-worn grooves, and and there's questions that I get more often than others, so I'm sort of ready for them and, and just like dear Abby, precisely, <laughs> precisely. So are there? Um are there constraints that you put on the character Lovecraft when you play him? I mean, I, I know that you obviously, uh, you, you can't necessarily um, go too modern or else the joke, or, or too contemporary or else the joke sort of loses its saliency. Do you have any other sort of invisible lines that you say, well, I might do this and think it's funny, but Lovecraft can't, and so I can't do that bit? I, I, well, I'm probably more self-indulgent than I ought to be. Uh, but uh, yeah, for the most part, you know, there's certain pop cultural blind spots that Lovecraft has and doesn't understand and, you know, is confused by. But I also like the joke that there's a, there are some things he just does know, you know. Yeah. For some reason, he does know about the over of Macaulay Culkin. You know, that's right, just something yeah. that's crossed his desk. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that, that slightly Captain America, you know... Man out of time. Putting, putting, you know, kind of filling in the blanks, but not necessarily in chronological, you know, chronological order. Right, and the conceit is that he's been reanimated, so he's yes. talking to people in the contemporary era. Precisely. He yeah. has yeah. some chance to catch up on things. Not sort of, not a Yithian mind transfer communication. No, just, yeah, it's, it's this idea that he's back, and, you know, there's certain things that interest him, and he's very excited about the, you know, multitude of ice cream flavors. And cat videos. And, and beautiful cat videos that make him happy. I get a lot of cat questions. We had yeah. one that for this uh, second show as well. Um, so they come up quite a bit. People so what was your, your research process in, uh, because you've got to know enough about Lovecraft to reliably incarnate him before you then start riffing and making it funny. So it's two stages, and how did you go about that first stage? Well, I read, I read you know, a lot of his stories, and uh, you know, I worked in a, in a bookstore with, uh, which had access to the internet, so uh, I spent a lot of time, uh, uh, while not helping customers, reading those stories. Uh, and that helped me at least be familiar with his work. But then uh, I'm very lucky living in Toronto because we have uh, the Merrill Collection, a big sci-fi reference uh, library, and they have a whole bunch 
of Joshi's edited and annotated collections of Lovecraft's letters with mm -hmm. Durlith and Howard. Right. And that was when I found those, suddenly, bam, okay, here's the character. Because sort of before right, yeah. that, I was just, it was, I was basing it on the play that my friend had written, and so I sort of had that character in mind. Yeah. And, you know, and that was a bit more kind of stiff and awkward and, and you know, oh, I don't know what's happening and, oh, I don't trust you people. And, uh, but reading his letters, you see, oh, wait, no, okay, here's a wit and a self-awareness and mm -hmm. a self-effacing humor and a slightly kind of catty attitudes towards, you know, Everything. modern yeah. writers at the time yeah. and things like that. Have you read uh, any of the biographies of Lovecraft? Not, not page to, not cover to cover. I've, you right. know, I've seen bits, read bits here and there and looked up specific parts of his life and, uh, you know, I've read a lot of articles about mm -hmm. him and the like, but uh, the letters were really where I just where I just dug in. Well, that's where his voice is obviously the clearest. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you have um, do you uh, do you honor Lovecraft's taboos? Uh, no dogs are good. All cats are good. Precisely. Um, yeah. The, the ice cream, not alcohol. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes, indeed. Uh, well, you know, and you play and you play with it, and there's certain you know there's certain gaps in my knowledge, of course, right? And things yeah. that I'm just you know not going to know that a hardcore fan is going to know. Uh, and for that, I am, you know, I'm able to prevaricate like a good actor and mm -hmm. uh, get away from the question or, or feign indignation, mm -hmm. uh, or I just blame it on the reanimation process, having done terrible things to his, you know, his brain. That's the same when people ask me, why does he sound more British now? I'm like, oh, vocal cords. It's like when you have a stroke. Uh, look over yeah. there. Right, because you're not trying to, uh, you can't do an impression per se of him because there's no uh, recorded uh, audio of his voice. There's a fake one, but yes. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, uh, and but you're not trying to necessarily do what he probably sounded like with a heavy New England accent and a high piping voice. <laughs> uh, the, there's a letter of uh, I think it's Hart Crane that describes Lovecraft as a piping non-entity. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, no, I precisely. I kind of had to. Well, I had to find a stage voice, right? Something that could translate and be heard and could mm -hmm. be projected without destroying my vocal cords. And that was this sort of, you know, Fraserian accent that kind of, you know, quasi-mid-Atlantic, but yeah. really it's like the character itself, a, a, a homunculus, not a simulacrum. Right. Um, and there is an interesting thing that you, you do in turning around his uh, racism and xenophobia, and you... Uh, imply that he has evolved on that since his, his return. I have to I have to play a very careful game with that because I don't want to sort of whitewash and be like, well, now he's fine and happy yeah, with everything because that's, right. that's not true to him and that's not true to the character. Yeah. And but I don't want to ignore it either. You know, I sort of take the I take the stance of no excuses, no apologies. You yeah, know, right. and uh, and I you know, and as someone who as someone who profits and exploits Lovecraft's legacy, you know, I yeah. think there's something in honoring him, but there's also something in not. And not making excuses and not covering up or trying to, yeah, you know, right. you have to deal with the reality of it. And I'm, I'm much more interested in him as a character, as a person, than I am as a writer. You know, I come from this from an actor's perspective. And I mean, being a geek, I've, you know, I like weird stories, and I like, you know, I knew Call of Cthulhu before I knew Lovecraft. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I come from it from that pers uh, perspective of interested in his, you know, in the inside of his head, not necessarily, you know. Talking about Dream Quest for 800, you know, times. Yeah. Well, I think no one is. Even Lovecraft wasn't that <laughs> in Dream Quest, which is why I didn't publish it. Um, I noticed that uh, there's a bit in the routine that you did uh, where uh, someone asked a question and your answer was something. Well, that's because you're all degenerate. Uh, is that a element? Do you how how sparingly do you like to use that element? Because if I had that element, I'd use it all the time. <laughs> I, I, I like to use it. I like to use it to, again. You know, sprinkle, not uh, overpowering. You know, it's um, it's a paprika, not a garlic. Mm -hmm. And uh, definitely, and, and definitely playing with it, not to just be like, oh, you mongrels. You know, yeah, with right, your, yeah. you know, 
that that I don't necessarily with, with your play cacophonous out. music and your <laughs> that's right Chinaman openly allowed to walk the streets. <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah, de definitely in terms of you know the when how people you know looking at art and looking at you know sort of his rejections of classical modes and, and mm -hmm. things like that. I think it's it's able to come out sparingly, yeah. uh, but uh, in a way that's sort of fun. Now the conceit of the uh, the web show is that he's an advice columnist, and do, in the live shows, do you prefer to get questions that are basically people's opportunity to do a Q and A with Lovecraft about his work, or do you prefer uh, the uh, generic advice questions? It's really hit or miss. I mean, I this time around, I didn't. I got a couple of of sort of advice questions. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm having pr problems with you know my root cellar and things like that. Um, but uh, and well, what do you advise to people who are having problems with the root cellar? Well, usually to move but yeah, if they right. can, or or you know, just set the whole place on fire. That usually you know that usually works. But you no, know, for the most part, what I get is is questions about pop culture. Not even necessarily questions about Lovecraft's you know writings or mm -hmm. stories. But you know, dear Mr. Lovecraft, what do you think about X? Well, Taylor Swift. Or yeah, or precisely. Yeah. Whether it's it's you know, do you X think it's her or fault or? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Taste Swizzle, yes, he's yes. a big fan. Right. Yeah. And that, and then that, I find interesting. That that's what people are very interested in more than in anything else. Is just what do you think of this thing I like, or you know, yeah. do you approve of this? Or can you say something really devastatingly awful about yes. something? Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, Lovecraft disapprove yeah. of. Sure, no one has asked. You know, what do you think of Justin Bieber from a place of love? <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's that kind of leads into another question because obviously every advice columnist sort of winds up answering the questions. That are in their uh, their wheelhouse, and drawing those more and more of that sort of thing, and you know, I think Dan Savage probably would be happy to answer a question about China patterns, but he's never going to get one. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, you know, dear Prudence gets the sort of you know, I'm a salon reader and uh, hate my life type <laughs> questions. Is there a is there a type of Ask Lovecraft questioner that you oh another one of my core, or is it still just generalized nerds? Hey, you know, can Captain America beat up Batman or whatever? <laughs> it's definitely a lot of nerds, it's, and that's that's a, a huge, huge component of it. And and when I do get something that's sort of very different from that, it, it throws me for a loop, and I have to kind of sit and, and and ponder it. Very early on, I got a question from a young woman, and it started off, you know, sort of your standard, dear Mr. Lovecraft. You know, you were such an inspiration to me. You know, being a sort of lonely child, you know, reading your work really made me, you know, feel like I was connecting to someone. Um, I know that you died of cancer, and my boyfriend is dying of cancer. What would you say to him about that? Wow! <laughs> and I'm just sitting there going, okay, uh, <laughs> yeah. all right. No, I no, can't make a joke about yeah, it. Yeah, no, nothing flip about that. And, and can, you know, I can't just be like, I can't just do what, you know, someone's like, well, why don't you just, you know, find some of Lovecraft's writings about cancer? I'm like, no, because then I'd just be like, this sucks, and I, I'm, I'm in pain, and I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. You know, like, there's yeah. nothing edifying in there. Well, uh, I mean, you might be selling Lovecraft short. I mean, when he was dying, he was taking medical notes on his oh, condition yeah. and giving them to his doctors and he's writing letters to Willis Conover that are as full of life and friendship and openness as any of the letters he wrote you know when he was healthy oh no but I think when talking about his own cancer yeah, I was, think it was mostly just ow yeah. ow 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 right yeah arg um, and so <laughs> maybe so he was had, dictating <laughs> and so I I had to you know find some way to, to deal with that and talk about words and talk about when there are no words and mm -hmm. sort of take this sort of meta position and those are those are hard, but ultimately rewarding, and they sort of stretch me, and they let me do more than just make you know an easy Durlith joke. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a fascinating part of, of this whole experiment, you know, just what I, I can't expect. Yeah. yeah, if it's one thing comedy needs less of, it's hack August Durlith jokes. <laughs> yes, right, uh, that tired old trope. What's the deal with August Durlith? 
I mean, really. He's the airplane food. <laughs> exactly. The world. Right. More like winter derlin. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so where can people uh, find uh, you on the internet? The best place is asklovecraft.com. That takes you right to the, the web series. But uh, if you're on Twitter, you can follow me at asklovecraft. I'm on Facebook at asklovecraft. Uh, the only thing that throws a sort of crank in it is I'm ask-lovecraft on Tumblr. Someone snagged, oh, someone snagged and hyphenated before me, and they're not doing anything with it. Uh, uh, you, hate, you hate Tumblr squatters. <laughs> There's no justice. Well, uh, thanks a lot for talking to us. Yeah, thank you guys so much. So as you can infer from the fact that you may have already heard the Cthulhu Con live episode and you just heard our interview with Lehman Kessler, Ken and I were in Portland for Cthulhu Con and longtime listeners of the show will know that means it was an occasion for a raid on Powell's bookstore. And this year I was there, so I was able to accompany Ken. Now, Ken, you were there the year previous, so this time you sort of already skimmed the uh, elliptonic and historical cream off of the Powell stock and only emerged with two shopping bags full of books. Yes, uh, last time I took advantage of Powell's uh, very generous uh, free shipping offer, where if you buy a certain number of books, they will ship them to your home in Chicago at no cost to you and at no cost to your uh, luggage uh, allowance. <laughs> yes. Which, when I reminded Sheila that that was true, um, she's not a, a woman that blanches easily, but I, I like to say that she blanched <laughs> Bl when I told her that. But, but in this case, yes. Uh, well, it's a terrible coincidence that they ship free to Chicago. It is odd. <laughs> but that's where their mother store is, is Chicago. And so I think that Oregon Pals has to recognize that Chicago Pals is the one true Pals, and therefore that's why they ship free to them. Uh, so even though this Pals is, is but a, a shade of the, uh, the Ur Pals, as it were, you uh, did emerge with a series of books, which we are now going to use as a springboard for a series of short rapid-fire discussions. And the first of these is the Penguin Historical Atlas of Ancient Civilizations by John Haywood. Mm -hmm. uh, I am a fan of John Haywood. Haywood has done... And I suspect what Haywood actually did is about three atlases that have then been cut up uh, in a bunch of different forms. Uh, he did uh, various atlases for the for Penguin. He's done a lot of atlases for a lot of other companies. But I think what happened is he did one batch of maps that then get repackaged. So if you look at an atlas and it's John Haywood, and you already own other atlases with John Haywood, make sure that you didn't duplicate John Haywood. And in this particular case, I did not duplicate John Haywood because the Ancient Civilizations one includes a lot of the maps from his historical atlas of the uh, medieval world, which is also, I think, uh, part of his atlas of world history. But it adds a few more dedicated maps, and it was also relatively inexpensive because it was on sale. Uh, this one goes back to, you know, the, what do I want to say, 10,000 BC thereabouts, uh, and then runs forward to the um, uh, classical era of Greece. So it's pre-Roman. Uh, it doesn't have a Roman Empire set. So up until the time you get stomped by Rome, that well, makes you ancient. And then in India, it goes down to the, I think, 2nd century AD. In China, uh, roughly the same. So it's the Han in China 
and all the pre-Han civilizations, and in India it's the Maurya, who we discussed previously, and all the pre-Maurya stuff, although there's not a lot of that, and then uh, Africa and the Americas down to when they started being pestered by cruel outsiders with cruelty. So, so the the uh, the Americas go all the way to contact. Yeah, all the way to contact, and Africa goes uh, in various places down to the 14th and 15th century when European and Muslim slave traders started coming in and tearing up the native kingdoms. So ancient is a variable. Ancient is a variable by civilization, because otherwise you just have a you know little box saying, sorry, no ancient civilization, try again. And that's a little mean to say about Mesoamerica when they tried so hard. It's not their fault that all their ancient civilizations are in AD. Uh, and so they, well, not almost, almost all, um, and so they, he, he wants to sort of provide a, up until, uh, you know, sort of recognizable uh, classical and, and modern history gets going, I guess. Um, so next up, uh, we hit the Osprey tranche of the uh, the book pile, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we'll probably zip through these pretty quickly unless you have uh, something you want to springboard off of. So we have the Chinese Army, 1937 to 1949, which I assume you gathered for uh, your uh, future Trail of Cthulhu China supplement. Yes, that is uh, going to be usable in Deathless China. Uh, it also would be usable in Day After Ragnarok stuff if I decide I want to um, uh, go back to China if I'm doing any more Day After, Day After Ragnarok stuff. But certainly, Deathless China, that uh, I have that one and I have the Warlords of China uh, book that I think is the immediate pre- precursor to it. So between those two, I should be pretty covered for what's, um, what's going on in China. Uh, and certainly what kind of guns they'll be carrying, which, of course, the most important question in all role-playing. Yes. Uh, how do you uh, minutely describe this gun that has the same stats of all other guns like it? All other guns. In gumshoe. In gumshoe, particularly. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, this is a plus-one gun, so it's going to be plus... In, in Robin Law's uh, designed games, the guns all seem to have suspiciously similar game effects. Yeah, that's what happens when you let Canadians do things. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, next up, uh, before the, uh, the advent of the gun, we have uh, another Osprey book, Imperial Roman Naval Forces, 31 BC to AD 500. Uh, what uh, put you in a Roman naval frame of mind? I think that um, I'm a fan of, of uh, naval warfare. I mean, I read Hornblower at an early age, and so the whole notion of Navy as force projection has sort of appealed to me as a strategist when I was doing my international relations stuff. I did the geopolitics of the Pacific. So I've got a navalist mindset, I guess, to an extent. And then the Roman Navy never gets any, you know, coverage. It's always the legions, and for good reason, because the legions were the probably the most purely unstoppable killing force until, you know, maybe the British army in the 18, 1800s, but the, um, or the Prussians. And so the, uh, but the Roman Navy never gets any press, and I thought, well, here's a whole book on the Roman Navy, let's pick these up, and again, uh, good old Osprey had good old, or rather, good old Powell's had good old Osprey on sale, so it was a pretty simple buy. Uh, next up, we have some notorious drug runners, uh, Armies of the East India Company, 1750 to 1850. You've kind of answered your own question there, haven't you? Um, <laughs> the uh, uh, British East India Company, uh, they, those are the guys who sort of conquered. In, I mean, people complain about corporations now, and it just makes you laugh. If a corporation is not actually going out and conquering somewhere with its own army, not even bothering the, the, the main army, uh, that's when you know you're, you you got a situation These in hand. You're non-metaphorical colonizers. Non-metaphorical corporatism. And so the, uh, the, the, the British East India Company, of course, was the guys that Clive was working for when he beat the, uh, the, 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 everyone at the Battle of Plassey, beat the Bengalis and took over Bengal. Um, it's what, what built the Raj, and then the British sort of turned around and said, well, 
it is making a lot of money. And then after the, uh, after the Sepoy Rebellion, the British said, well, you can't have nice things and took it away and then ran it themselves for another hundred years. That's what but in the, the current parlance is known as a public-private partnership. Exactly. And in that particular case, it was a, um, uh, they decided to pri- uh, publicize the risk as well as privatize the profits. But the, um, but, but the guys who actually did the, the, the on the ground fighting, that's, uh, that's another classic, uh, role playing type setting is you are, you know, mercenaries in a continent that will kill you. What do you do? And I think that that's a, that's a good one to look at for that kind of gaming. Uh, next up, Napoleon's Mameluke, still in the Osprey tip. Mm-hmm. Egypt is always a good thing to have stuff about, I think, regardless of what era. I always enjoy setting things in, um, uh, in Egypt. So when you've got a whole book on Napoleon's Egyptian cavalry, I think that that's a useful thing to have. I don't know because I haven't checked in the book whether or not they, you know, served on the uh, European campaigns the way the Zouaves did in later French armies, or if he simply used them in Egypt uh, when he got beat by the Turks and ran away like a big baby. Uh, John um, Cocteau enjoyed hanging around with the Zouaves in World War One. I'm sure he did. They they dressed snappy. Yep. And they weren't all judgmental about Jean Cocteau. They they were not. And so, uh, the, I don't know if Napoleon uses the Mamelukes in Europe, but if he does, that's yet another cool thing to put into your Napoleonic game. And even if he doesn't, it's a great thing to have for that crucial period of Egypt, uh, that uh, Tim Powers magic, uh, Europeans coming into Egypt and not reading hieroglyphs, period, when anything is possible and most of it is. Uh, moving out of the thinly sliced charcuterie that is the Osprey section to a thick bunch of content, uh, which you're going to uh, deploy into your uh, upcoming Moscow source book for Trail of Cthulhu. It's Moscow 1937, and this has a really interesting hook to its historical work. And what is that, Ken? The the hook is that one of, I mean, when I uh, quoted it to you in Powell's, I was only quoting a bit of its interesting hook, but that interesting hook is that it looks at the Moscow social directory which stopped being published in 1937 and was never published again because everyone in it had been killed, uh, or most of the people in it had been killed. Yes, and the, the 38 version <laughs> is just a photograph of a mass grave. Yes, it's just a photograph of Lubyanka with the sign, wish you were here and you're going to be here. Um, but the uh, but the book actually looks at a lot of, I mean, I thought it was a great book just when it was going to be tracking that, but it's got more than that. It's got the Moscow film colony. It's got uh, how the cartographic uh, truth of Moscow was was broken and kept secret. It's got the great, you know, Stalin killing all the census takers because they came back and said, we're missing a bunch of Russians. Do you know anything about this? Um, <laughs> that's, it's, it's that, got, that's what's known as getting blood simple, right? You, you, you kill, yeah. you commit one mass murder, and then you've got to keep it rolling to cover it up. Keep keep killing all the people whose job it is to track the population of your country like a big dummy. But yeah, there's a lot of great, and it you know it's it's bracketed by the by the show trials beginning. It, it talks about the purges, and then it talks about you know arts and uh, sport and and all the other aspects of life in Moscow under the shadow of this god awful situation that's going on. You know, there's you know it starts out at the beginning of 1937. There are about a million people alive that are dead at the end of 1937, mostly retail. This is not the sort of terror famine everyone in the Ukraine is being starved to that stuff. This is, you know, someone has made a list and picked a guy and pulled him out and tossed him into Lubyanka and either shot him or sent him off to Siberia to freeze to death. And it's just sort of an ongoing, very personal level of of murder that, that happens. And then this is about the lived experience of being in that city. And it's just 
crazily researched. He, he has um, one chapter. And that's I should about mention he is Carl, Carl Schlegel. Schlegel. I forgot yes. to mention the author's yeah. name. This was originally written in, in German uh, uh, for a German uh, historical institute and has been translated into the English uh, a couple of years later. And he has, um, he's got uh, these guys who went to America and did photo essays about America in 1937, Russian photographers and artists, and then came back and published their book about, here's how great it was to be in America. Look at how all of the systems are not falling apart, and no one has to stand in line for no reason. And also, there's racism. And um, then those guys did not, in fact, get thrown in Siberia, but the sort of fate of their book being questioned as it, as it, as, the, as you move through the year and the terror increases. It's just a, it's just a crazily interesting book. It's one of those where you open it up and think, well, I'll just look at this one little bit. And two hours, three hours later, you've read an awful lot about Moscow in 1937. So if you are interested in the great uh, terror, if you're interested in uh, sort of a, a document of a, of a city being destroyed by, by its uh, ruler, if you're interested in social history of the thirties, it's, it's really, or artistic history of the thirties, it's really great reading. And it's just a, a the, you're amazed at how comprehensive it is. The, the level of data that he has for Moscow that he's assembled is just insane. It's crazily good. And how readable is it? It's very readable. The, the translation is strong. Um, it is not a, uh, as I mentioned, because it's got these sort of, uh, sectional bits that either makes it more readable because, you can just read the part about uh, the film colony and then not read the next part, or you can just read the part about the German army making its own map of Moscow and how they did that without telling anyone. I, I, yeah, I think people would look askance if they knew. Yeah, they would. Um, but it turns out that's the only good map of Moscow because all the Soviet maps of Moscow were, were declared secret and all the map makers were, were thrown out, um, uh, literally. And so the... Uh, and so, but you can read that chapter, and you don't then have to go and, and read a bunch of other chapters. But reading it from soup to nuts is, I suspect, going to be something of an adventure. Uh, but as long as you're interested in what an individual chapter is about, or you're interested in that ongoing story of the of the social uh, register, then it'll it'll keep your attention. So uh, next up is a book that knows how to explain what it is in its title. This is by Alan Axelrod, and the title is "Little Known Wars of Great." And lasting impact. Yes. Uh, and of course, it's uh, in the military section, so the uh, word wars is way bigger than any of the rest of it. So, uh, do you have some sample uh, obscure, important wars for us? Well, Alan Axelrod is one of those guys who I would be if I were a grown up. He does a lot of really good nonfiction for reputable publishers. He's sort of, he's the guy that I suspect you come to him and you say, I want a book about little known wars. And he's like, you got it. And then seven months later, here comes a book of little known wars just for you. And he's done stuff on secret societies. He's done a bunch of other things. He's, you know, not uh, not going to thrill anyone necessarily stylistically, but he's just, he's a good, straightforward nonfiction writer. And I looked in the table of contents to see if they were, in fact, little-known wars. And indeed, not only does he use my, uh, my keynote little-known war, King Philip's War, which is the most important war no one knows anything about, but then he also adds wars that I sort of knew about, like the... Boyar's Revolt Against Ivan the Terrible, or um, uh, the Austro-Turkish War, the, what they called the Long War, uh, after uh, the failure of the Second Siege of Vienna, and the Great Northern War that we talked about previously in terms of the Battle of Poltava, the Barbary Wars, not very little known, the Opium Wars, even less little known, but also um, the War for Afghan Independence in 1919, and the Arab Revolt in Iraq in the 1920s, 
neither of which gets really a lot of attention. Um, and then the Genpei War in Japan, which is somewhat little known, but the Beaver Wars of the Iroquois are almost completely little known, and so good for him. So there's a it's a it's a smattering of wars. Some of them more more better known than others. I don't think anyone thinks the Franco-Prussian War is little known, but maybe he means it's little known compared to the other two in that bout in that series. So, uh, but it but it's just pretty straightforward. It, it gives you a, a straightforward military history of each war, and then a tight a, a to my mind too small. Uh, section on what this war changed about the world. So you can use that as a jumping off point for your alternate history, if that's what you are interested in. Uh, next up, we have the selected letters of Lawrence Varebia on the cover drawing looking suspiciously like Peter O'Toole. Uh, how does Lawrence Varebia qualify to join your collection of collected letters? Uh, Lawrence Varebia qualifies because I have turned into a guy who has a collection of Lawrence Varebia books. I think we've talked about this before. But I've got probably by now eight or ten biographies of Lawrence and a couple of other tangential books. I don't know if I backed into it through secret archaeology or I backed into it through the history of spycraft or if I just got into it because, hey, it turns out that was a really great movie. And Lawrence is really an interesting guy, despite having, you know, in the final analysis, not actually contributed an awful lot one way or the other to World War One. And Robert Graves wrote a biography of him fairly early on, and I am a huge Robert Graves fan. I think he's one of the great writers of the 20th century, even though he's, you know, crazy, but he's really good at writing. Those things are not mutually exclusive. Not mutually exclusive at all. But uh, I, I got Graves's biography of him a while back, and that is probably the thing that sort of, you know, tipped me over. And now every time someone does a, a good new biography of Lawrence, I either, you know, try to buy it or I do buy it. And with this, it's like, of course, there are Lawrence letters. There were, in fact, on that shelf, two different editions of Lawrence's letters, and I picked the most recent one uh, purely on the basis that it will be it will have been edited in light of the more recent Lawrence scholarship. But you know, I can certainly see a world in which I go back and get the other one, and because it turns out that's where all the letters to Lord Curzon are, or something. Uh, next up, we have Jungle Land, a mysterious lost city, and a true story of deadly adventure by Christopher S. Stuart, uh, where is this lost city? The lost city is in Honduras, and I think that the best way for me to describe it to you is uh, to read the back paragraph. And let's let listeners at home, maybe they can get a small bell or a, or a, or a shot glass and make a small ding every time I want to buy this book. <laughs> okay, audience participation. Audience first. participation. And Robin, you can follow along with your own dinging device. Armed with the personal notebooks of the mysterious World War II spy Theodore Morday, ding, an adventurer who attempted to assassinate Adolf Hitler, ding, 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 journalist Christopher S. Stewart sets out in the search of the lost white city, ding, buried somewhere deep in the Mosquito Coast of Honduras. I don't like mosquitoes so much. I'm not, uh, gonna not ding so much. All right, no ding there. I'm gonna ding. Uh, Stewart pieces together the whirlwind life and peculiar death of Morday, ding. who sailed around the world five times before turning 30, ding, ding. as he tries to verify Morday's claim of having, having discovered the lost city of the monkey god. Ding, 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 ding. Now, that, that's a description that knows to leave monkey god to be the last two words of the paragraph. That is a book that is really, really confident. That it's like, if we can finish with monkey god, we don't have to lead with monkey god. <laughs> and so, you know... By by that time, I, that was I think I picked that up in the line to pay for the other books, and I'm looking at the back cover, and yeah, it was going, uh, yeah it buy was. Me, 
it was it was love at first sight. That is very intriguing, although if it turns out to be filled with many chapters about the author being bitten by mosquitoes and other jungle vermin. I am afraid there is going to be that, uh, that uh, there I was standing in the clearing with my good friend Idiapu of the Mosquito Tribe when blah blah yeah, blah. I've, just written an, I've read enough descriptions of what it is like to look down and see uh, leeches all over you, so I don't, don't need any more of those. But No that, more leeches. That's Robin's new, new goal for yes, 2015. I've got a surfeit of vicarious leech reading in my past. Now you're just trying to make the title happen. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So next up, uh, we have one, and I'm going to have to describe the cover illustration. So imagine a not really great illustration, one, you know, of of its period. We have, it looks kind of 80s from the uh, vintage of the uh, computer screen. It looks like an, uh, like an early uh, PC. And uh, coming out of the monitor with a nimbus of mystical energy is a green clawed demonic hand because this is Unholy Spirits, Occultism and New Age Humanism by Gary North. And uh, from this illustration, is there a chance that the author has a particular strongly held viewpoint, Ken? I think, uh, and you look at the, the green claw and you think, oh no, it's reptoids, but no, it's demons. And this is a book that I'm kind of amazed I didn't actually find in Oklahoma. It came out in 1986 from a lovely Christian publisher in Dallas. Uh, and it, that's the sort of book that would have found its way to me immediately. Perhaps provided by a, 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 a kindly relative who's concerned kindly about relative. the status of your library. Or, or, dis, or disturbed friend. Um, or person who wanted me to put stuff into my CFC game, which is where a lot of those came from. Anyway, the... Uh, the, 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 this is a book that is a compendium of the unexplained in this classic fashion of late 70s, mid 80s books. But it, it, they're not unexplained. In fact, they're demons. Spontaneous human combustion? Demons. Chicago fire? Demons. Brazilian faith healers? Demons. Atheistic Soviet scientists deeply involved in researching and developing human radios? Demons. <laughs> Eyeless sight? Demons. Ghost photographs? Demons. Fantastic, yes. True, absolutely. Demonic, without a doubt. And so, it's it's great. I don't know why no one thought of this before. Nothing's unexplained. It's demons. It's perfect. And so, I, I, I can't imagine that the inside is as great as all that, but if I get, like, a demon explanation for Edgar Casey, and I get a demon explanation for the Barney and Betty Hill abduction, I'm going to feel like I'm ahead of the game. Uh, does it have uh, D&D demons? Uh, I don't know if it has Dungeons & Dragons. It might. Let's look in the index, shall we? The realistic page flipping you're hearing now tells you that we are actually flipping. The actual page. I am not seeing Dungeons & Dragons. I think that maybe the Dungeons & Dragons is less important than Evolution, which has a lot of entries. I I, I would actually agree with that. That is stated. Me too. I think so. It's less important than Evolution. That's interesting. There's an index for the year 1965. That's a little scary, given that it's my birthday year. And, oh, something. That's Ken Height. Demons. Demons. <laughs> that actually, you know, now we rub our chin and think. Mm. There's a reason why you weren't given a copy of this book when it first came out. Um, there's also a, an index entry for Cute Witches, which goes to Samantha from Bewitched. Let me guess. Demons. Demons. Yes, absolutely. It's demons that have made, and Genie, the, the, the Genie from I Dream of Genie, uh, so cute, both of them. Uh, and so very temporary, by 1970, the public was watching television programs that delved into the evil and powerful side of magic. And uh, they praised Kolchak the Night Stalker for its realistic portrayal of a witch. So, this is a, sh- this is a book with hidden depths, is what I'm saying. That was, that was one index dive, and we got to be witched already. Next up, we have 
Ewan McPherson's The Trial of Jack the Ripper, the case of William Burry, uh, and that's 1859 to 89. Uh, William Burry was a guy who was arrested for murdering, I think it was his wife, in Dundee, Scotland. And when they uh, nabbed him, apparently uh, someone said that written on the wall of his, on his doorway, I believe, was Jack the Ripper lives here. And when he was arrested, uh, supposedly he said to the cops, oh, thank God, you're just here about my dead wife. I thought that you were going to arrest me for being Jack the Ripper or words to that effect. But because somebody wrote that in my door and it's been really it's messing with me, me. man. Um, there is no actual, uh, the, the police notebook, the, the interrogation of this guy, uh, Burry does not survive. So that is a hearsay after the fact. Also, there is no evidence that this Jack the Ripper inscription was written in his house. This is just a story that came out around the trial of this guy for slaughtering his wife. We don't need evidence for a Jack the Ripper book. What kind of crazy talk is that? As Jack the Ripper is at the back of this door and Jack the Ripper is in this cellar. Um, so the, uh, so, so the whole thing, the whole Jack the Ripper thing might be the Dundee newspapers trying to sell papers or because the Burries did in fact live in Whitechapel or at least the East End in 1888. Uh, who knows? He, like three and a half million other men, might have been Jack the Ripper. Uh, the interesting thing about the Burry case that I, I mean, it's not that interesting actually. It's the least interesting thing about the Burry case is that he's killing his wife. Instead of a bunch of, and one assumes there are prostitutes in Dundee. It's a, it's a seaport. Um, so the possibility that Burry is the Ripper is sort of odd that he's Jack the Ripper. He comes home and he says, well, honey, uh, we have to move to Dundee. I've killed too many prostitutes in London. And she's like, well, I understand. They move to Dundee and she starts writing, Hey, Jack the Ripper lives in the cellar. And he's like, well, you can't be talking about, see, it just makes no sense. It doesn't hang together, but it does. Uh, adduce the interesting fact that because Burry was a sort of a sailor, I think I forget if he was a, a butcher that worked on boats or he had something to do with boats or cattle ships, and that's why the Ripper's murders only happen on the weekends is because by day he's out sailing cows around, and then weekends <laughs> he comes in and relaxes by slaughtering people. So does this author uh, commit to making the case, or oh, uh... this uh, this author believes it. This author is has um, uh, has nailed it down. Um, he is very much a belief that this is the uh, the lost Jack the Ripper that we have been looking for low these many years. Um, and again, compared to the standard type of Ripper suspect, which is an elderly doctor with gout or a painter who wasn't even in London at the time or whatever, he's a s- staggeringly realistic suspect. It is already a murderer. Uh... He is, yeah, is, is actually a murderer uh, and a fairly grotesque murderer. I mean, he, uh, he mutilated his wife's abdomen after death, so not a pleasant fellow. Um, but Still, wives are different from prostitutes to murderers as well as to cops. And I think that the uh, the, the question of, of M.O. can only take you so far on that. The next one uh, sort of gives away its nature through its uh, uh, graphic design. Uh, Jocelyn Godwin's Atlantis and the Cycles of Time, Prophecies, Traditions, and Occult Revelations. Uh, your uh, shelf must be yawning with Atlantis books. Uh, how did this one make the grade? This one makes the grade because it is written by Jocelyn Godwin, who is that Rara Avis, a rigorous believer. Um, he is a guy who believes in sort of mystic over 
entities and things like that. He is at least willing to rec- represent, at, recognize Atlantis as a meaningful spiritual story, a parable, a fable, even, and maybe even a real geological thing. I, he writes well enough that you can't tell one way or the other what he thinks. He will set something out. He'll describe how it has been debunked or not debunked or ignored, and then he'll move on. So he has written a number of excellent books, uh, among them Arctos, uh, the uh, Antarct- the, the polar myth, uh, I forget what it is, it's like the polar myth from Hyperborea to the refuge of Hitler, but um, he's written a bunch of really good sort of the- modern-day theosophical works, I guess you'd call them, and uh, this is another one of them, and it talks about how people have looked at Atlantis, and to what extent Atlantis is part of the ongoing philosophical concept of the cycles of time and the myth of the return. So he looks uh, not just at our old buddies like Gurdjieff and uh, Edgar Cayce and uh, René Guénon, but he also talks about all the other sorts of, um, you know, Vilikovsky and things like that. So he's got a lot of different... Uh, uh, this is this is sort of the Atlantis version of his book about the mystical poles, and it includes lots of you know exciting things from the nineteenth and twentieth century. Like I say, he's a rigorous researcher. He if he says such and such an ancient text says such and such, it actually does. He didn't just make it up because he wanted it to. He's he's uh, sort of like Robert Temple in that way. But uh, even more so than Temple, he is a mystic, and when he writes his books, he's writing them from the notion, which I guess I subscribe to, that if you accumulate enough details, you get a mystical truth about something. And so, to that extent, I guess Godwin and I are sort of um, uh, soulmates, except, of course, that I personally don't think there was Atlantis. Next up is one where the uh, answer to why you bought this book is self-explanatory because it's called Myths, Legends, and Folktales of America. And uh, you're on board for all of those things. This is an anthology by David Leeming and Jake Page. So what what is it that uh, is this a general survey that uh, filled a hole that you uh, had in your collection? Yeah, uh, m- most of my folklore stuff on America is from the twenties and thirties, from the great era of uh, folkloristics, and I guess the nineteen fifties is when they wrote all down all the research that they'd done in the twenties and thirties. But guys like B. A. Botkin, who's sort of the um, uh, and Dorson, who are sort of the deans of American folklore studies. They're done. They're in, I, I suppose in many cases they've they've left us. They've gone on to you know hang out in the Big Rock Candy Mountain, and this book is, uh, since it's an anthology, it's a collection of them. Uh, it's not uh, these guys presenting their probably nonsensical socio political beliefs. It's going to be these guys saying, "Hey, look, Wendigo stories," and I'm a big fan of that. And because they are writing it in this modern era, they're going to be extending to a larger supply of sources than just the same, you know, Appalachians and uh, Yankees that Dorson and Botkin got. And even the even the guys who went around and did the ethno-folkloristic studies in the South, they, they had a fairly narrow band. And these guys, uh, you know, pulled in a lot of other immigrant communities and a lot of other things like that with the notion that all these crazy stories are part of our American mythology. And, uh, again, the advantage of the book being, you know, 50 years more recent than most um, uh, folklore compendia. That that seems to help, I think. Uh, next up, we have a collection of essays by Neil Stevenson called Some Remarks. Uh, I'm a fan of Neil Stevenson's writing. Um, I think that it, his nonfiction it, it is in many cases uh, almost as interesting and in some cases more interesting than his fiction. So I wanted to, you know, pick up a book of Neil Stevenson essays. It's how I pretend to know anything at all about technology. Uh, next up, we have 
handbook to life in ancient Mesopotamia. We don't uh, know as much as we want to about uh, life in ancient Mesopotamia. This is by Stephen Bessman, so I assume this is sort of a uh, what we can gather about what everyday life was like there. Yeah, these uh, compendia, I have the one for Greece, I have the one for Egypt, I have the one for Rome. Uh, these compendia are pretty great. Are these all the same author? Same publisher, but not same the publisher. same author. Uh, what they do is they, they, they go through and they, um, uh, they pull together, you know, a, a glossary, uh, a gazetteer, a list of gods, uh, cal- the calendars of the holidays, all the sort of just basic stuff, and then fill it with as much as we know about day-to-day life as you can. So it's like, what did they eat? What do they wear? What are they carrying? And it's very sort of standard, very sort of, you know, here's what we know about this ancient dead culture, which makes it a really great source for role-playing. It's like if um, uh, you wrote a GURPS book and it was twice as long and had no GURPS in it. That's kind of what these are. In right, the- because it's very easy to find kids' books that tell you about everyday life in uh, historical cultures, but surprisingly difficult to find sources that tie all this together for uh, an adult audience. So I guess this is that. Yeah, these are basically, like you say, they're um, they're still well illustrated, but it's not sort of the Dorling Kindersley big, beautiful color illustrations and a paragraph of text. This is much more well-selected black and white illustrations and a page of text, which is the direction that I want to go with when I'm trying to do research for uh, a game or a, or a book or whatever. I've, I've used the Greece and Rome ones uh, plenty of times, and I know tons about Greece and Rome. The Egypt one... I've actually used a little bit, uh, uh, but I wind up writing a lot more about Mesopotamia for some reason in the last little bit, so I'm just glad to find this. Next up, we have uh, a little nod to the food hut in the form of Borscht, Vodka, and Tears, Food to Drink With by Benny Roth, which I think is possibly the graphically best marketed uh, Polish cookbook I've ever uh, seen and passed to my friend so that he would buy it. Yes, uh, this is one, as you as you hint, that you found for me and said way to sell Polish cooking or something like that. And I uh, looked at it and sure enough, it uh, is in fact a way to sell Polish cooking because I bought it. Um, the guy, I guess, has a restaurant, a Polish restaurant, or a, it began as a vodka bar and then he started adding Polish food to his vodka bar. Uh, my wife really likes Polish food and she's liked it even more as she's been doing research in uh, into a great Polish serial killer in Chicago uh, and has gone up to the Polish American Museum and things like that, which is right in the heart of what was uh, Polonia back in the 19-teens and has still got a number of good Polish restaurants. There's a number of other ones that are really great that are sort of more on the northwest side that we've also gone to. So I figured, hey, maybe I can make Polish food. And even if not, as you say, it's a very attractive book and it has vodka right in the name. Next up, we have a work of fiction. It's John Belair's The Letter, The Witch, and The Ring. Uh, John Belair's is, to, for my money one of the most underrated children's authors ever. He His great classic that I think a lot of people have read is uh, The Face in the Frost. Maybe not a lot of people now, because this is a fallen into base time. And that is a sort of standard in the sense of it's set in a secondary sort of fictive world uh, fantasy story. Then he wrote his next one, and his publisher said, these aren't really selling, maybe do them as children's stories. And so his next one was called The House with a Clock in Its Walls, which was set in America, 
And I think that's what sort of jazzed him up. And a lot of people, they read Face in the, in the Frost, and they read House on the Clock in its Walls, and they're like, oh, why couldn't we have that Bel Airs? Why didn't he keep writing for adults? It's like, well, there's tons of people who write great horror for adults. There's not a ton of people who write great horror for children. And these are definitely kids' books. They're, you know, not even tween or, or young adult books. These are down to your, you've gotten out of chapter books, and you're not quite ready for, for Katniss. This is in between those. Um, and, but they're great and they're individual stories. He has a number of series of, um, uh, series characters that have various sort of adventures in, uh, some small American town, usually in the fifties. The general pattern is that the hero is an orphan or is otherwise, you know, alone. He's living with kindly, but not super, uh, attentive relatives and he makes friends with a local eccentric who, it turns out, either has a connection with or knows something about the world of secrets and magic. And it turns out that the kid stumbles onto something horrible, a curse, a uh, in, in this particular case, a, a mummy, a will, and a ring. Um, but often, you know, a house with a clock on the walls, a uh, um, the chessman of doom, uh, whatever it happens to be. And it's just a terrific, uh, you know haunted, cursed, ghost story type thing. And then at the end, there's the smattering of genuine occult. There's a larger dollop of imagined terror and uh, another great story ends. And it's, you know, they're super short because they're for kids. You can read them relatively easy. I think that The Dark Secret of Weather End is one of the scariest books that I've read uh, because it's got sort of this crazy old guy and he dies and he was he was obsessed with weather and now he's dead. And our, our, uh, little hero, Anthony, discovers his crypt, and sure enough, trouble ensues. And the trouble is just the trouble of bad Midwestern weather that keeps getting worse. And if you've lived in Chicago for any great length of time, you know all about the sense that this could be the time that a thock was actually going to come down and put paid to all of us. Uh, and that is even stronger in a small town away from everywhere. It's just a, it's a, it's a great book. It's relatively late in his, in his career, but I think it's super strong, but I've been sort of collecting them over the years and Mummy the Will in the Ring is not one that I had at the time. So I bought it. Although the, the ones that you really want, what did I say? The Mummy the Will. It's the Letter of the Witch. Letter of the Witch in the Ring. Mummy the Will in the Crypt. That's a different one. Uh, the ones you actually want are the ones with the Edward Gorey covers on them, but those are out of print and of course now commanding fairly high prices. Uh, these are ones that were re-released by the publisher who is an idiot, uh, with different covers, uh, much homelier covers, but the Edward Gorey interior art is still there. So you have that. Um, but it's, but it's not, it's like little, um, chapter headers and things like that. And maybe one frontispiece. It's not, you know, illustrated throughout necessarily. And finally, we have Anthony Price, our man in Camelot. Anthony Price is a, uh, spy, uh, novelist. He, is he was the I think the mystery or thriller critic for a newspaper in Oxford, and he said, you know that those great words, hell, I can write better than this, and it turned out he could. Our Man in Camelot is a part of his David Audley series. David Audley is his sort of um, uh, analyst hero. He doesn't usually go out into the field. He usually figures out what's going on and sends other people out in the field. But sometimes he goes out in the field. This one is. Slightly unusual in that it is not told from Audley's perspective or from anyone in British intelligence. It's told from the perspective of a CIA agent who is sent in to find out what's going on at a uh, U.S. Uh, Air Force base in Britain and what connection it has with King Arthur, which is why it's called Our Man in Camelot. 
and it is uh, all of Price's books generally have something in history that turns out to be crazily relevant or creepily relevant to the current spy story. And um, uh, uh, Audley's uh, number, his opposite number, his Carla, is a Russian spy named Panin, who is a um, uh, archaeologist and KGB commissar, and so makes a nearly ideal foe for Dr. Audley, who is a medieval historian and uh, in, implied MI6 guy, although they never say who he works for. He works for the Ministry or um, uh, the, the Ministry of Defense or Research and Development or whatever. Uh, I recommend all of the Audley books. I recommend all everything that Anthony Price has written, but Our Man in Camelot is a really good one, and it's one that I did not have. I checked a lot of these out from the library like a like a amateur, um, and so now I have to rebuild my collection. <laughs> so is there a particular uh, jumping-on point for that series, or can you start anywhere? I would say that you can either start with the first one, which is The Labyrinth Makers, um, or you can start uh, another one that's really good is The Old Vengeful. Um, they're all kind of, they're all pretty good. Uh, I would say a, a lot of them are flashbacks about Audley's time in the end of World War II. Those are not going to be as helpful for you. So you'd start with, like, Labyrinth Makers and Alamut Ambush, and um, uh, uh, the old vengeful, and then maybe you start going back into the um, uh, the the flashbacks and the weird ones like Our Man in Camelot, or just start with Our Man in Camelot. If you like King Arthur, it will it will give you a good Arthurian Jones while being a really really great intellectual spy thriller in a lot of ways. Although there's still some action. Well, I think it's time to give our listeners a break from typing things into their to-read shelves on Goodreads and declare another podcast done and done. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Whisper some sweet, lawful good in our ears by hitting the donate button at KenandRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as... Joshua Sokol. Andrew Miller. And Daniel Callahan. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or one-person show by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.